of March 26, 2023. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 612, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And back in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. I was I mean, in New York for in New a York, week, right? like yeah, eight, yeah, nine yeah. days. Oh, blessed New York. Oh, my God, it was wonderful. I was in New York. I saw shows. It was very exciting. Uh, I went to like five. I went to two musicals, two plays, an opera, and saw a billion friends. So, oh, and- I was in, mm-hmm. in London where I saw um, the posters for four operas, uh, Three or four musicals, including Back <laughs> to the Future, by the way. They, the, the poster for Back to the Future, the musical, said, See it yesterday. Ooh, which clever. I thought was very clever. Uh, I did not have time to see any actual, you know, musicals. <laughs> well, I saw on, uh, at the public, I saw The Harder They Come, which is a musical adaptation of the reggae film starring Jimmy Cliff from the early 70s, the first feature film made in Jamaica. A big worldwide hit, especially the soundtrack, which is still a seminal soundtrack. It really introduced reggae to the world the same way like uh, Black Orpheus years earlier introduced Bossa Nova and made that a worldwide sensation. Uh, the Harder They Come really did wake everyone up to reggae. It's still a great, great album, one of the best albums of all time, hugely influential. So you're in good shape when you start with great songs, even though they're not technically musical songs that sort of push the story forward. But uh, Susan Laurie Parks, a great, uh, a great uh, artist, did the book. Uh, not wholly successful, but the cast was hugely talented, hugely charismatic, and really sang the songs well. So I had fun, even though there's a lot of work to do on the book. I saw the opera Lowingen at the Met, which was a sequel to Parsifal, done by the same director who did Parsifal like eight, nine years ago, and I almost wept it was so good. This one, not so good. Uh, I also saw the musical Dear World at Encores. Encores used to do like weird, quirky shows that would never get remounted again, but they would present them in a stage reading so that you could see them and hear them, you know, because like that was your only chance. So they'd do it for a weekend. Then they did Chicago. And that was such a massive hit and it jumped to Broadway. And suddenly every show they did, it felt like they were trying to audition for Broadway. And they were doing shows. You thought, well, that doesn't need any help. That's that's like a big hit show. But and like they're doing Oliver actually in a few weeks. I'd like to see it. But that's a show that could be back on Broadway. Dear World. Absolutely not. Bonkers. Crazy. Ridiculously bad show. But lots of good songs. And it was fun to see. And I saw Love at the the Park Armory. This is by a British playwright. It was absolutely tremendous. It was so good. Alexander Zeldin, I think is his name. I've heard about him for years. They've taken forever to come to America. This play is 90 minutes set in a homeless shelter. And it's brutal. It's brutal. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, but it's so good. The audience didn't breathe for the entire 90 minutes. Nothing happens. It's not like there's big melodrama and people die or fight. It's just life. But it's so believable. You're just on the edge of your seat going, oh my God, I'm so worried for everybody. But it was true. Well, that's a theater goer's like magic words. 90 minutes, no intermission. (laughs) Oh, don't say that to Nathan Lane. The magic word is good. When it's good, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so, uh, that's what matters. And, uh, the, the last thing I did, I went to, um, the museum of Broadway. Broadway now finally has a museum dedicated to Broadway and it's right on Broadway, right near Broadway on 44th street, I think, or 45th street. 
And it's like five or four floors and you go in and there's a little video and then there's timelines, you know, vaudeville, minstrel shows, the early days of Broadway. And there's big displays for Oklahoma and West Side Story and all the shows you would expect. And there's tchotchkes, you know, there's shoes from Kinky Boots or boots from Kinky Boots. And there's the wig that Patty LuPone wore in this show and all that kind of fun stuff. It was fun. It was amiable enough. There's lots of little things they could improve. It's not really friendly if you're trouble walking or not good at being ambulatory. I assume there are elevators. I'm sure there must be between each floors, but not wildly friendly if you're in a wheelchair or don't want to navigate a lot of stairs. Um, But there is lots of things they could improve on it, make it even better. But, and it was quite expensive. It's probably the most expensive museum in New York. However, if you're really into Broadway, you'll enjoy it. The Museum of Modern Art costs $50 to get into. Uh, Does it? I looked at a lot of them. Are you sure? I looked at the Met. I looked at thirty or fifty. Well, that's a big difference. Why don't you Why don't you check up the price? Um, well, I know that the the, the Met- Metropolitan Museum of is, Art is thirty dollars. That's correct. I looked that up, and the Museum of Sex is thirty five dollars. Um, the uh, Museum of Modern Art is twenty five dollars. Twenty five dollars. Right. This is forty dollars. It is the most expensive museum that I found in New York City. Maybe there's something somewhere that's a little bit more. That's a lot of money. You know, it should not be more than every other museum in New York. But of course, they're a private company. They're in a space on Broadway. It's a little cramped. There's lots of things they could do better. Um, But, you know, it deserves to be there. It's been a long time coming. I hope it can survive and that they can improve it and make it as great as it deserves to be. But I was excited to get to Broadway. And another show is getting to Broadway. I know Sperlin's excited. Smash the Musical is coming to Broadway. Yeah, so this was a TV show that mm-hmm. kind of was a TV show about a Broadway production, Bombshell, which I thought was actually pretty good, and yet nobody actually watched it, other than me. Apparently. Well, no, it had a cold hit, and that's why they're turning it into a Broadway show. But the question is, why aren't they mounting Bombshell? Why are they mounting Smash? They're making Smash the musical about people putting on Bombshell, rather than just mounting that show that people thought, you know what, I'd actually like to see Bombshell, the story of Marilyn Monroe. Right? My, our in-house yeah. film critic, Aaron Rich, said, why aren't they doing Bombshell? I'd rather see that. What do you think? Uh, y- yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a good kind of soap opera around the production of a Broadway musical. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know that I'd want to see it as a musical, to be perfectly Would honest. Would you want to see Bombshell? <laughs> Did you think there were enough good uh, songs for that to work? That could work, actually. Right. That could work. Well, okay. Questlove has an idea of what's going to work. Of course, he won an Oscar for directing the documentary film Summer of Soul. Uh, of course, that was a lot of found footage and present-day interviews. A really good film, really enjoyable. And obviously, everybody wants to be in business with Questlove. He's been weighing his options for a fiction film debut, and he's found the perfect project. He'll be directing a live-action hybrid remake of the Disney animated film The Aristocats. Of course. Now, it's actually a musical. I get that. It's actually ripe for improvement and remake. It's not like it's a beloved, perfect classic. Um, But, you know, when you haven't ever directed a live-action feature film, starting with one that's a big, lavish period musical and live-action hybrid, I'm not sure if they mean they're going to... I mean, because you got a lot of cats, so that's very technologically challenging. I'm not sure that's the best film to start with, but, you know, who am I to question Questlove? Uh, I don't know. You're Michael. Yeah, but I'm going to question you, Sperling. I want to know, what are we going to talk about this week on the show? 
Well, we're eight minutes in, and this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we have the latest on the talks between the Writers Guild and producers and those secret talks by the DGA, the Directors Guild of America. They tried to, you know, weasel their way in there. And award season comes to an end with the 48th annual IRA Awards. Never heard of them? Well, then you must be new to Showbiz Sandbox. Plus, Disney's firing of a top executive at Marvel is its very bizarre, and we'll discuss why. In video streaming news, fast channels and services like Tubi are starting to make their presence known. Fast channels are very hard to catch up with because they're very, mm-hmm. they're very fast. Keep going, keep F-A-S- going. Okay, yeah, well, today, Tubi and others like, like Tubi snag 2% of total viewing. Tomorrow? Well, mm. who knows? On Inside Baseball, we'll look at the music industry uh, they're bloated out. You know, here's the thing. Are all these bloated albums the key to hitting number one on the Billboard album charts? And even if it works, is it good for an artist's long-term career to have that many songs out there just to hit number one for like four weeks? Well, recorded music did hit a worldwide record if you don't adjust for inflation. And everybody knows I like to adjust for inflation. <laughs> uh, and by the way, everyone from fans of the rock band The Cure to Broadway buffs like Michael are still facing angst when they're buying tickets. Uh, that is beyond true. It's gotten out of hand, actually. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office where he well, right now he's about to get beat up by uh, someone named Mr. Wick. <laughs> That's right. We're looking at box office around the world for the week ending March 26th. We cover the entire week's grosses because why not? What do you have against Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? What, what did they ever do to you? And the number one film around the world is John Wick Chapter 4. It cost $100 million to make and it grossed $138 million worldwide, besting John Wick 1, 2, and 3, pretty much everywhere all around the globe. So big, big opening weekend. And given the reviews and given the audience response, this one will absolutely hit $300 million. It's not going to pull a Ant-Man on us. It's going to do very, very well. It's going to make it very hard for them to say, as they have, that perhaps this is the last John Wick, even though there will be spinoffs and prequels and stuff like that. But a very big opening week for John Wick, Chapter 4, about $140 million worldwide. Then, at number two is a Japanese animated film by the director of Your Name and Weathering With You, Makato Shinkai, uh, really one of the best directors working today. His new film, Suzumi, opened up in China, and now it made $61 million last week. It's at $182 million worldwide. So he is really one of the big talents around right now. Certainly somebody that any big fan of, of Japanese animation in the U.S. would want to pay attention to. Uh, At three is a box office flop. It's Shazam! Fury of the Gods. It grossed $36 million this week, but it's falling hard and fast. It made $102 million worldwide so far. This will not get to $330 million, which would be triple its reported budget. Scream 6 Well, you know, I... Mm -hmm. While I was at uh, the UK Cinema Association conference last week, I watched as uh, theater operators, they were like doing their their bookings for the following week, for the week the weekend that we just lived through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were all sending Shazam back. <laughs> wow. Like, 
they were like, yeah, this uh, Puss in Boots did better, like attracted more people that weekend. Puss in Boots did. is one of the great uh, word of mouth stories of the year. The whatever number it is in this franchise of Shrek and Puss in Boots. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish made another $4 million this week. It's at $475 million worldwide. That is a monster, monster success. Uh, back towards the top, Scream 6 is a hit. That made another $23 million. It's at $140 million worldwide. Creed 3 is a hit. That grossed another $22 million. That's at about $250 million worldwide. In China, we don't know the budget for the film called Post Truth, but we know it's made a total of about $72 million worldwide. It had a pretty good week this week. Um, but after Shazam, we have another flop. It's 65. This is an Adam Driver sci-fi flick. Will it make $65 million? Probably. But it won't be easy. It made $10 million this week. It's at $50 million and falling fast. Then another Chinese film. This one is an ode to journalism. God bless you. It's called The Best is Yet to Come, and it opened to about $6 million. That Japanese animated film, and the anime actually, the first slam dunk, that basketball movie, still making money in Korea and all over the world, $130 million. It's been a big hit everywhere it plays. Now, Cocaine Bear feels like a hit, right? Everybody talked about it. Everybody laughed about it. Everybody loved it. The bear appeared on Broadway. Director Elizabeth Banks deserves credit. It grossed $5 million this week. It's at $80 million worldwide. It still hasn't tripled its budget of $30 million, but it's going to get there, and it's certainly close enough to say there's going to be a cocaine horse, cocaine cow. I don't know what would be next in the series, or maybe meth bear. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> meth bear. <laughs> yeah, meth bear. Maybe that's the obvious one. Uh, but scrolling down the list, uh, the Chinese film Revivals doing okay. Ant-Man and the Wasp continues to fall really hard, really fast. It's not going to get to $500 million. It's, it's a stunning collapse for a movie. It grossed $4 million this week. It's at $467 million worldwide. In the reverse, we've got Avatar The Way of Water that made a, still making money. $2 billion, $306 million worldwide. What we don't have is great numbers early in the week by Monday, which is when we usually record the show. We need better figures from Japan, India, uh, stuff that covers all Indian films, not just the Bollywood industry, and Korea. If you've got a website you can point us to that gets their figures in by Monday morning, uh, let us know. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at showbizsandbox is our handle. And we are, of course, on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandboxes, where you can like our page. Sperling, I have a question for you. Oh, boy. It's all right. It's an easy question. Okay. okay. Uh, the WGA talks began today. We also found out that the DGA reached out to the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. They're supposed to go, well, they're not, there's no rule, but uh, their talks are scheduled for a few months later. Uh, they quietly reached out and said, hey, you know, maybe we should start talking now. Uh, maybe we can get an agreement done, you know, before all the stress of a deadline and all that. You know, these are a couple of the Tran things. Translation, translation. We don't want to have to be beholden to what the WGA got. I don't, I don't, but, I don't think so. I, I think there's no, you know, they had gone first before, so there's no reason they couldn't have gone first again. They went first last right. year, didn't they? So this is not some trick. And 
All the guilds want each other guild to succeed. So they're all rooting for each other, not rooting against each other. They want them all to make the best deal possible for the obvious reasons. But the DGA says they approached the AMPTP and said, look, we we really got to discuss, you know, like streaming. We got to discuss subscriptions. We have to, you got to be more transparent about data. We got to talk about monetization. This is where all the money is. This is where all the budgets are going. And it's just not working out. And it's really hurting our bottom line. And the AMPTP said, go away. (laughs) <laughs> right? So yeah, my question to you is, will there be a strike? Yes. And whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? At this point, it? I would say the streamers came along, upended how the industry works, which is not always a bad thing, but they're basically saying, we'd like to hold all the cards and tell you none of them. Uh, trust us, we won this poker game. Just give us your money. Right. And <laughs> at this point, it, it's become... a. The, the economics of the industry are completely all over the... They don't, they don't work anymore. People so used to make to, tens of thousands of dollars a year if they had writing credits on a TV show. Now they make $10 because right, it's streaming. It's just not working. <laughs> right. So it's the producer's fault. They're not even willing to talk. They're not even willing to budge. They're going to force a strike before they will finally come to the table and actually start to work out the agreement that has to be made. Right. And I think what I, I, we were talking before we started recording that, well, you know, if you're not going to give us the data, then I'm going to assume that every show is a huge hit and we're going to, uh, our minimum contract will be uh, price everything at huge hit and that's what you will have to pay everybody. Oh, <laughs> now you want to talk about like, oh, that one didn't do so well, so maybe you pay less? Okay, now let's talk. You right, know, right. Just have a, best, best, a most favored nation clause. Say, I want whatever deal you gave to your most popular show. If that's what you gave Stranger Things, that's the deal I want. They're like, no, you're not right. getting that. We won't even tell you what the deal is. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but so this is all on the producers. You cannot pretend that there aren't serious issues to be raised and talked about. You can't pretend that the WGA and the DJ and all the other guilds have some crazy outlandish. They're like, how are our shows doing? We're not making any money. What's going on? This is not some crazy demand. Well, <laughs> and it's think about it. If you're a writer or a director or I a, a runner. You wanted well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, a real writer. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, listen, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um. You know, it's you'd want to know. Hey, I've got this other idea for a show, but I don't even know how the last idea I had did. So I don't know if this new idea is going to be any good because I have no idea what the viewership was. I know that they renewed me for three years before suddenly canceling me in the fourth year because everybody's contract would have gone up, but. I don't know if this is a good idea or a bad idea based on the ratings and the viewership of the last thing I did. So it's just, it's become a, they they, 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 they did a new format and said, you don't get any money. There's no back end. We'll pay a little bit more up front sometimes, but you won't make any money in the back end. Residuals are going to end and we won't tell you how popular your show is. Enjoy. (laughs) Right. Right. And they fell for it. They fell for it in music with compact discs. They said, oh, God, this new, this, new, this new thing. We'll never make money. We don't know what's going to happen, but you have to give us a cheaper royalty rate. Like, well, okay. And then they stuck them there. So they reduced the royalty rate on something that costs more money and that made the industry a gazillion dollars. They did the same thing with DVDs and Blu-ray in Hollywood. They're like, oh, you got to give us a loan. You're never going to make any money on this. This is crazy. And they made a ton of money and they never want to talk about it. Now they're making a ton of money, perhaps, or they're trying to make money on streaming. All the major studios probably are thinking, dear God, Disney Plus is still losing money. 
Why are you asking for more money? Well, because we're not making any money. <laughs> You're pouring yeah. money into it, and we're not making any money. Well, we're questioning the approach of AMPTP. And, you know, we love Ryan Fonder of the LA Times. He has his column, The Wide Shot. You should subscribe to it. It's well worth reading every, every time it comes in your newsletter email. Uh, but I do question one comment he made recently. He said, quote, Superhero fans want interconnected stories, which was the case that James Gunn and Peter Safran were making to Warner Brothers Discovery long before taking charge of DC, end quote. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, hey. so, so let me get this straight. Superhero movies stem from comic books, which are all somehow interconnected and often, often not always, but often have stories that go from book to book or crossover f- between characters. So the, you're mimicking the the comic books so so fair I enough guess, but right except that that's been a big complaint of comic book fans for for decades now that they're always oh, okay. constantly doing massive crossovers and massive reboots and everything's interconnected and and then and then they blow it all up and say oh it's all new again so you have to buy everything from scratch and start you know they throw away storylines or they 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 ignore the history of a character just to create some big new massive arc so you're supposed to buy 30 different comic books to figure out what's going on and it hasn't been a very happy time for them the great creative stuff is not being done that way it worked the first time they did it everybody was excited but then they did it again and again and again and people like enough well it worked the first time for marvel we all watched like 20 plus movies to get to the big finale of you know avengers we did it and it you know yes but you then named that finale end game <laughs> that was and everybody a- thought it was over <laughs> right and now they're like starting all over again we're like oh god really is every movie just the next step in a new story like can't anything have a beginning middle and end anymore so i really question that and if that's what james gunn and peter saffron which seems to be the plan that's what they want to do at dc gotta help you because i was looking forward to some you know standalone stories remember spider-man three stories they stood alone in that original toby Maguire, re- you know version those were great some of the best movies of all time the first few superman some of the best comic book movies of all time now everything just blurs together you could name Ant-Man Thor and Thor, you know, uh, uh, the Hulk. I mean, they're all in everything. So I do not think that's the answer. You can do it, but not always and not everywhere. And not again, please. Give us some time. <laughs> oh, well. That's, that's my feeling. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter had a story on popcorn. I don't think they had very good sources. They blandly made some comment. Check out our show notes if you want to know the true story of where popcorn came from. But I do want to say we know where money it comes, comes from. from the cupboard, and then you like put it in the book. Bu- oh, you oh. mean oh, yeah, at yeah. movie theaters? Um, okay. I know Sorry. where the money comes from. It goes right into the pockets of the CEOs. Paramount's Bob Bakish, Bakish. Ba- he got Bob Bakish. He got thirty-two million dollars. That's up $10 million from what he got a 50% raise. Good job, Bob. Pat him on the back. Uh, But Disney, not so good stories there. They have about 220,000 employees and 7,000 of them are going to be cut in the next few weeks. So uh, sad days at Disney. 7,000 out of 220,000, right? Uh, uh, 22,000. That's like 3% of their workforce, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of people. A lot of people whose lives are going to be upended. So it's a sad times at Disney right now. But it's a good time if you're sick of awards because we have finally come to the end of award season. We have info on the Oscars and their live plus seven ratings. How'd they do? Uh, the Oscars? Yeah. What were the final ratings? Live plus seven because you add more people. Even though that's a show people watch live, you know, we've added a couple million people. What's the final big rating numbers for the Oscars? 
I think the overnights were 16 and I think it got up to 20 million or something like that. That's right. It's now 20 million, which is a big improvement over last year. It's unfortunately the third worst year in history. <laughs> so <laughs> oh my no, God. It's, it's great, but it's, it's better. It's trending in the right direction. And I still feel, do you agree with me? I thought the Warner Brothers tribute where they paid to have a tribute to Warner Brothers, the hundred years of Warner Brothers, and they paid for that, just like Disney paid to have an ad for the Little Mermaid inside the show. This is not, you know, Milton Berle days where the hosts hold up a, a can of soup. You know, this is the modern era. I think that's just ridiculous. And to have Warner Brothers celebrate the musicals of MGM in a tribute to Warner Brothers at the Oscars is so outrageously bad. And so I think it's just a Shonda. I think it's absolutely awful. And I seem to be the only one who cares. Yeah, I mean, because look, at, at this point, look, I get it. You know, the Oscars were supposed to be there to promote movies and promote the stars. And, and the I history. They have the Academy Museum. They're supposed to be the, the curators and the arbiters and the protectors of film history. They restore movies. They celebrate the actual history. And if they put on a display celebrating Warner Brothers at the Academy Museum and showed the sound, uh, the Wizard of Oz and singing in the rain, I think they would be laughed out of the building. I think people would laugh them out. That's absurd. How can you do that? And to do that on the Oscars, where people don't know what they're doing and how ridiculous it is, that's wrong. But I'm the only one who cares. <laughs> do you care about the well, Oscars? Uh, you know what? I do because I, I care. I will say this. So you should explain what the IRAs are. But the reason I like hearing about it is that you, always, you guys always find some very unique movies. Yeah, that's true. You know, I, I've looked at the IRAs. This is an annual awards group that I've been taking part in since the 90s. This is the 48th year of the IRAs. So I was like six when the IRAs began or seven or whatever. Um, how old was I? I don't know. Um, or eight. <laughs> my math no good so the iras have been around since the late 70s and they it's it's academics it's film critics it's uh editors at major you know film magazines like premiere back in the day it's people who've written best-selling and acclaimed books about hollywood like biographies of billy wilder and betty davis and books on screwball comedy and film noir and a million other topics it's people who work at studios and publicity it's people who've gone on to win oscars uh, it's mostly old white men. But nonetheless, it's a diverse group of people with a lot of history and passion for film. Clearly, we're not like, oh, dying to see the latest Marvel remake. They're very arty, very independent, very focused on international films. And when I compare it, like, the Irish and the Oscars have only named Best Picture twice, the same, the same one a year, Annie Hall and Moonlight. That's the only two times in 50 years that they've matched. When I look at the uh, Spirit Awards or the New York Film Critics. There's a little more overlap with the critics, but year after year, the Iris really do manage to celebrate movies that uh, people have talked about. They're acclaimed. They get great reviews. It's not like we're finding obscurities, but they aren't being celebrated as much by others. So our best film of the year, we got together over the weekend. I did it by Zoom, and we named the German film Great Freedom the best film of the year. It won five Iras in all, including Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Picture. It's about a man who is held in a concentration camp in World War II because he's gay. So he's in there along with Jews and Romani and other people. And they are freed, of course, by the Allies at the end of the war. And he's immediately taken from the concentration camp and tossed into prison because he's gay. <laughs> the Allies actually did that. The gay people went right back into jail because <laughs> you're gay. <laughs> so he's stuck in jail anyway. 
And he makes friends and has a lover and then he gets out and then he goes back. He can't stop having sex with men and he keeps getting thrown into jail for decades. And it's a fast. And then he ultimately, as so often happens, he finds life easier on the inside than the outside because he spent so many years. A fascinating film, spans decades, very interesting, very good. That was a big winner. Aubrey Plaza won for Emily the Criminal. She won one of the Best Actors of the Year Award. Uh, Hong Chow for The Menu and the Whale won. Barry Keegan for The Banshees of Inishirin. And then Werner Herzog. Not The Fire of Love, which was nominated for uh, Best Oscar Documentary Film, but we honored The Fire Within, a requiem for Katia and Maurice Kraft, another film about those couple, those two people who were volcano experts, and they went all over the world filming them. Werner Herzog did a documentary on volcanoes. He met them, and when they died tragically, he made this film about them, and Ira voters loved this movie even more, and they almost won Best Cinematography. Because they shot all the footage seen in The Fire Within and Fire of Love, these two films about these scientists who study volcanoes. They're some of the most gorgeous footage you will ever see in a film. Go see Fire of Love where you can online or go see The Fire Within. They're both well worth seeing. So check out our list after Yang, after Sun. And yes, movies like Everything Everywhere All at Once and even Top Gun, Maverick got shout outs at certain points. We've got about 30 films listed that received a nomination or a top award. Uh, some of them you recognize, some of them are horror films, some of them are big hits, and most of them are smaller art films like Petite Maman, which was probably the second favorite movie of the year, Happening, a great French film, Guillermo de Toro's Pinocchio, uh, Playground, a marvelous French film, The Territory, a great documentary on Disney+. Plus. Check out the 30 films. They're well worth seeing. Well, and uh, a lot of them were... You know, Sundance uh, films. Oh, uh, Sundance, Khan, absolutely. Yeah. 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 These are films that played the festival circuit. I mean, After Sun was nominated for an Oscar, but we gave the, the, the child actress, Frankie Corio, we gave her even more points than Paul Mescal in the best actor category. Uh, she was just terrific. He's great too, but she's terrific. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of good movies out there, and these are probably some that slip through the cracks. If you like arty films, independent films, international films, I think you'll really like that list. And if you like movies at all, you probably have seen a Marvel film or two. And Disney just fired a top Marvel exec, Victoria Alonso. I didn't know her name, but right along with Kevin Feige, who is a name you probably will know, she was considered one of the top three at Marvel and has been there for 20 years. Well, they fired her, and it's getting ugly. The first excuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so she was kind of in charge of visual not kind effects. Of, not kind of. That well, was one of her yeah, domains. She, that was one, that of, was her one domains. of her domains. Yes, yeah. correct. Uh, and she also produced uh, Argentina 1985. She was one of the producers of this film that uh, Amazon uh, made about. And was you know, nominated what, what for happened. Best International Film at the Academy Awards. Yeah. Right. And so when, when uh, they went to go make a contract for her and they said, oh, you can't be doing stuff like, wait. No, 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 no. no. You're, you presenting, no, no, no. you're presenting Disney's side of the story. She was fired after 20 years, a top exec. It made huge waves. 17 years. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was, okay. Almost 20 years. A big, almost big figure years, at yeah. Disney. And Disney came up with this reason as well. She made this movie and she shouldn't have done it. She produced this film. You're not allowed to do that. This Argentinian film, clearly a minor passion project. And we told her she couldn't do it. And we made a new contract and we said, all right, we're going to forgive you, but you cannot do press for this movie. And then she went and walked the red carpet and gave interviews for this film while Disney was trying to promote Wakanda forever. And I thought, what? 
Like, really? That's bizarre. Either she's insane or they're insane. None of it made sense. I didn't even write it up because I thought there's got to be more to this. And it turns out there is. She's involved in the FX. Uh, Ant-Man and, and the Wasp Quantumania got terrible reviews for its special effects. Now Disney's saying, yeah, she's done a poor job there. And she's really hard to work with. You know, after 17 years, suddenly decided this executive is really hard to work with. She, however, has hired attorney Patty Glazer. She says it's nonsense, their excuse. She says she was fired without cause and was after an ugly incident, which you don't know about yet. Plus, this woman is queer and she's been very visible at Disney. She called out Bob Chapek publicly and called on him to denounce Florida's don't say gay law, which he finally did and created all sorts of mishigas for Disney. So she's pointing painting this as disney's revenge uh, of course bob chapek is gone but she says there was other horrible incident and this is all nonsense i did my job and i did it well and no i didn't go rogue on this tiny argentinian film so there's a lot more to come we're going to be hearing a lot more about this for the weeks or months to come why they didn't just give her a producing shingle and send her on her way we don't know <laughs> and just pay her off exactly yeah, just like, hey, you wanted to fire her we get it but really you know Oh, she, she worked the red carpet. <laughs> it's hard to do the right thing. And that certainly happens when we get to the social justice section. There was a weird thing a few months ago when Justin Roiland, the co-creator of Rick and Morty, it came out that he was potentially facing domestic violence charges. The Orange County DA had announced this in January and everybody dropped him. I'm like, wow, that, you know, domestic violence is horrible. We're not a fan. Uh, We're not supporting Justin Roiland, but surely people should have a chance at least to, you know, prove themselves innocent. Well, it's eight weeks later and we thought they were precipitate. uh, And now it turns out that the Orange County DA is not proceeding with the case, citing insufficient evidence. That doesn't clear him, which is a shame if you're innocent, but, you know, just because they don't move forward with the case, it's very hard to prove these cases. Uh, so it's not that he's been exonerated. It's just they are not proceeding. But he's not facing any cases. Is this a miscarriage of justice? Well, we found out that, well, he's actually not creatively involved beyond doing voice work and hasn't been for many years. So all these shows he's involved in, it's not such a danger to them to distance themselves from Justin Roiland. Then we heard women coming forward with creepy stories about him. And that's, that's, he's going to have to deal with that forever. But nonetheless, there has to be something where you say, look, just because somebody's accused of something, you don't dump them immediately. You step back. And that's maybe what's happening with Jonathan Majors. He's an actor. He stars in Creed 3. He's an Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, playing a major villain. And suddenly, he was arrested over the weekend on domestic violence allegations. Not a fan of domestic violence allegations. You know, and if 20 women come forward, we're like, enough. But he's facing one case of domestic violence allegations. His lawyer says Majors is 100% innocent. They have evidence that they're going to hand over to the police. These charges will be dropped immediately. Nonetheless, the U.S. Army had a built a big campaign be all you can be around jonathan majors and now they are pausing that and they're saying we're going to pause it i haven't read their official statement but that seems to be the appropriate thing to do i think you know you say look we don't know what's going on obviously we take that seriously but everyone's innocent until proven guilty we want to let him focus on the case and let justice be served and we'll revisit this when we have more information That's what you do. You don't say, to hell with him, we're cutting him off forever. Nor do you say, he's completely innocent. How dare they accuse him? You just say, look, we don't know what's going on. We're pausing it, and it's going to create a lot of problems for us, but that's the best we can do. 
And that seems to be what they're doing here. That isn't what happened with Justin Roiland. They may have had very good other reasons to have cut ties with Justin Roiland, but they didn't know it even when they knew about this stuff for years, apparently. Yeah, I mean, it's getting to the point where, you know, if you, and, and this is what a lot of these, like Justin Roiland uh, was saying, hey, I had a really bad breakup. I didn't handle it well, I'll, I'll admit. Uh, but, uh, and so this person, their way of getting back to, at me was to file these chart, you know, to file these charges. And now I've had to c- combat this and look, it's kind of upended my life. And, but- okay. But then we have all the other women coming forward and saying, wow, he sent me super creepy emails like editors at Mad Magazine who were fans of him and didn't solicit anything from him at all. And so we're like, OK, now we see a pattern where your employees complain. But you also feel yeah, like they were trying not, to. By the way, it, it might not be domestic violence. It just might be, hey, creepy. you're just not a good guy. Right, right. What that does are very different things and not fireable causes and, you know, et cetera. And they didn't know about that stuff as such. So maybe they were angry. They didn't know about it for two years because the charges were made two years ago and he's been having this over his head, but they only became public in January. Maybe that was part of the issue that they just found out about. And they're like, what you've had this for two years and we didn't know. So it's, you know, we take all of this stuff very seriously. You know how tiresome, you know, progressive we are, but people also deserve a chance to, to prove themselves innocent. You know, they, you shouldn't assume they're guilty because of a single charge. If 20 people step forward, like Bill Cosby, I don't need a court case because 20 people are not conspiring to sully someone's name with accusations of rape. That's not happening. But yeah, Jonathan Majors has the right to clear himself and the army's right to say, well, we're going to pause it. They didn't say we're dumping the campaign. They didn't say we're cutting all ties with him. I think they did the only thing you can do and responsible say, well, we're going to pause this. We don't know what's going on. He gets to be proven innocent, uh, but we take this seriously and we'll, you know, we'll figure this out. (laughs) But let's pause it for the moment because you don't want to go forward with the ads either. It ain't easy being a company. It's nice. They probably just want all avatars that never get into trouble. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe not. You you mean like AI avatars, not right. not, not, not James Cameron, not avatars. James Cameron avatars, right? Just fake fake people that never get arrested, not even once. So I watched all this stuff. I'm going to be watching Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania probably on a streaming service because I have YouTube TV, and oh goody, YouTube TV has just raised their prices. Isn't that great? Now in 2020. It was $50. Then it jumped to $65. Now it's jumping to $72 for my YouTube TV. It's basically my cable package. That's what I'm paying for. It's cable. And $72 is a lot less than $140 or $50 that I was paying for with Spectrum. It's still, though, a hell of a lot of money. And I don't want NFL Sunday ticket. And that's what's driving up the YouTube TV prices. Isn't this why I left cable so I wouldn't have to pay for ESPN? Well, wait, I thought, I thought the Sunday ticket you'd have to pay for separately. No? Yes, but they, they paid a ton of money for it. They, they, want to raise, they want to raise up money for it. They're not waiting to have everybody subscribe to this NFL Sunday ticket. They're like, yeah, you know what, we're raising. They didn't say it, but they just bumped up their prices. And so they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, they're going to inexorably rising. And they just spent a ton of money on the NFL Sunday ticket. So I'm like, I wish you hadn't spent all that money. Maybe you wouldn't raise my price. Wow. Okay. Do you, do you still have cable? How much is your cable bill? I still have cable, and I've got to be honest, the Dodgers don't look very good this year. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, and, and if they're not going to play well, and I'm not going to be watching them, there's really no reason for me to have cable. The only, my, my cable bill right now is $202. Does that month. include Wi-Fi? It does include internet. So that's about $60, $70. Does it include a, a landline? 
No, it does not. Okay, so that's about $160, $150 for the cable. Right, easily. Yeah, and, and I'm, so paying I'm, and, I'm paying yeah, $72. i am paying 72 I don't want to be... I'm done with this. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't, I watch CNN. Okay. I'll watch CNN. I'll watch, uh, but I'm sure there's some great stuff. Like if I had time, I'm sure I'd look it up and be like, oh, look, there's this mo- TCM, look, Turner Classic Movies. Look at all these old movies. I have, I have but, so much TCM stuff recorded. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I don't have any time for it. So I'm like, I don't. I should just dump it. Well, Nielsen uh, is measuring who's watching what, where, uh, what platform you're watching stuff on. Uh, Streaming is about 34% of all TV usage. That's like YouTube, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime Video, Disney Plus, and so on. Cable is 30%. Broadcast TV is 23.8%. Well, now, if you add cable and broadcast, which are basically the same thing, that's still traditional television. That's 54% of all streaming, but of, of all television watching. But 34% is coming from streaming, and there's another 11% that is from other stuff, I guess maybe satellite. But when you look at streaming, the most popular service is not Netflix, it's YouTube. Not just YouTube TV, but YouTube, 7.9%. All those videos that Sperling watches of Sia, uh, that really adds up. Uh, then it's Netflix, 7.3%, and then way down to Hulu, 3.3%. Prime Video, Disney Plus is only 1.8%. HBO Max, 1.3%. Peacock is 1%. So there, And where's Paramount? I don't even see them listed here. So there's a lot of room for growth in the amount of time people spend on Peacock and Paramount and even Disney Plus and HBO Max. But you know what's also getting attention? Tubi. Tubi is one of those fast channel services that's free ad-supported television, kind of like basic so, cable. So in other words, I don't have to pay for it. I don't have to subscribe to it. It's you gotta free. Watch, you got to watch ads. But I have to watch ads. Right. Right. And that gets 1% of the streaming. 1% is on Tubi. Almost another 1% is Pluto TV. That's the same thing. So when you add it up, that's like 2%. Probably if you add up all the fast services, there's all those fast channels now, that may be 3% of all streaming. And that's only going to get bigger. So, you know, there is a... Well, actually, I apologize. That's not 3% Uh of streaming. That's 3% of all television viewing on every platform. So I thought... that's even more. Right, because YouTube TV is only 7.9%. Netflix is 7.3%. When you add it up, that's how you get to 34% of all TV viewing happens on a streaming channel. So actually, that's about 3% of all viewing is probably already happening on those fast channels. And with Sperling's cable bill so big, uh, that's going to keep growing. That's a lot of television watching. And you know what, Sperling, are you watching Outer Banks? Are your daughters watching that? Outer Banks on Netflix? Yeah, they watch Outer Banks. Outer Banks is at the top of the charts, 3.1 billion minutes viewed in its opening week. That's about a month ago, February 20th to February 26th. It's sort of like a Beverly Hills 90210 show, right? It's like a a soapy teenage drama, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, so they're loving it. That's the biggest hit on television and on streaming right now by far. So that's a big deal if you're a teenage kid. You're probably all watching that. Oh, I see. You said big deals because you like the people that are on the show, and that would be a big deal if they were... Oh, wait, maybe it's a big deal because it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our yes! weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Maybe that's why you mentioned it. Yes. This, now this, speaking, ties, this ties into you and, and regional sports networks. 
That's true. Although, well, you'll you'll see what I have to say about this on the other side of it. Now, it's well, happened. then I'll read it. I'll read it. It's happened. Okay. The world of regional sports networks has been rocked by the bankruptcy of Diamond Sports Group, the owner of Bally, among others. It took the financial steps so the company can restructure itself for the long term. Meanwhile, fans of college or pro sports teams that reside on these regional sports networks worry about the short and long-term effect of cash flow and disruption to teams looking to recruit new players. What? No TV contract? I'm going elsewhere. And of course, they got to pay the bills. So this is really having a big impact on teams right now. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? It is a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal because of the way it will affect sports teams and the way it will affect uh, specifically baseball in this regard, because they went first. Yeah. Uh, it's going to upend. You want to talk about business models being upended uh, to give you some sense. The Los Angeles Dodgers were purchased uh, in, you know, for $400 million by Frank McCourt. And I think he sold them. I can't remember what the timing was. He bought them for $400 million, kept them for like maybe 10 years and then sold them for two point like, four billion dollars now how in the world in less than 10 years did that thing jump up and well because of the cable rights the the sports rights spectrum cable which is basically time warner cable which is basically charter cable they have their own sports channel and they have the rights to the los angeles lakers and los angeles dodgers they are the regional sports network themselves for that particular, for those particular teams, right? Like the can, Yankees have their own channel, the Yes Network. They own all their own stuff. Yeah, right. And that is billion worth billions of dollars. So they got paid like eight billion dollars for that. So of course, you buy something for two point four billion dollars, and then you get eight billion dollars for it. Hey, guess what? You've won. Well, that's essentially what all of these teams have done, not only in baseball but also basketball, and all of these regional sports networks, like the one that the Cardinals play on. Uh, you know, they're, it turns out they can't afford to pay the teams. Why? Because essentially what was happening is, you know, all the grandmas and grandpas out there that weren't necessarily knowing that they were paying for these regional sports networks, nor did they care. They were subsidizing these regional sports networks just, because you were just forced like you to pay subsidize for that. ESPN. Every channel gets money from if you subscribe to cable or YouTube TV, CNN, uh, ABC, Turner Classic Movies, along with you know Yes Network. Right. We all get some pennies. And so, what instead of fighting with the cable companies, hey, take that regional sports network out of my package. I don't want it, and you're you're making me pay for it. You know what? The, you know what people said? Actually, I don't want cable. So now all of a sudden, they knew cord cutting was going to be an issue, but not that fast and not by that much. And, and it's not that people have abandoned television. People like me subscribe to YouTube TV, but it does not include any regional sports networks. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Them, it does include a good package of, um, uh, of uh, SEC and the Big Ten network, but it does not have the, like the Yes Network or things like that. You got to pay for that separately on your own, you know, if, you, if you'd go right to them and do it. Well, if you don't want them, then. Right. You, you can't know, you pick and choose every channel, though, on YouTube TV. It's a bundle, just like cable, but it's not as bloated a bundle as cable has become. So there is a YouTube TV in particular has a very good sports package for people who are into that stuff. I'm not, but my brother is. So there are other channels that are weaker on sports and you get less of it, but then maybe you pay less money. Yeah. And that's why it's a big deal is because it's going to affect the sports teams. And Absolutely. 
Now let's move on over to, uh, I guess, the Chinese government, because there is a Japanese genre of mangas that are known as boy love stories. Uh, They show romantic tales of guys in high school or college or just entering the workforce who have heartbreak and pain on the road to true romance, just like real life people. Uh, And by the way, girls love these stories. They're hugely popular with female audiences who swoon over the soap opera-like drama as the two guys fall in love, then one of them moves to Yellowstone. Oh, wait, no, that's a different... (laughs) That's a different monk. Uh, now, the trend, this, this boy love trend, has hit China, and the government, they're not happy about it. Writers, usually women, who pen them are sometimes being thrown in jail, and the writers who aren't thrown in jail are using increasingly vague and ludicrous metaphors to suggest the hot and heavy queer desire that's really taking place. The guys are just really, really good friends. They, they live in an apartment and dress as women so that they can live in the girl. Yeah, no, just kidding. That's bosom buddies. Uh, big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop, of course, not for the people being thrown into jail, um, but it's fascinating how this, uh, this um, genre has traveled all over the globe. And it, it, you know, Rufus Wainwright you know, came out at the beginning of his career, the singer Rufus Wainwright, who's gay, and he said, you know, the labels were all freaked out. He said, but it turns out teenage girls love gay guys. Like, they can fantasize about you, they can be a super fan, and they don't have to worry about you actually, like, bringing them backstage and wanting to have sex with them. Like, you are the safest person that they can be into, right? You are never going to betray them, you're never going to demand sex from them, you're completely safe. And he's like, it's actually a very good market, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's, you we're seeing this again and again all over the world, that teenage girls can have this romantic outlet without worrying about how I don't compare to the female character that he's fallen in love with, or I'm not as beautiful or pretty as her, or, you know, he's, he, he'd never like me. It's like, no, it's not even an issue. You can just enjoy the romance of it. So it's fascinating. And in case you think we don't say nice stories about China, because I think the country's great. I've been there. I'd love to go again someday once it's safer. But uh, Full River Red, that Zhang Yimou film, that's coming to the U.S., and I'd love to check it out. So uh, there's good stuff going on in China, too, but... This stuff is interesting and it's cracking down on people and they're going to jail for it. And that ain't. You know, so I don't even know if I should bring this up, but we're currently working on our annual list of the top women in global cinema. Mm -hmm. And we notice we have no entries from China. Like Uh, nobody nominated anybody from China. So we started reaching out to certain people and saying, hey. Who's the uh, big players? Yeah. Yeah. Who are the big players that we should... Uh, they are, uh, there are some that are saying, yeah, because of, um, the relationships with the West, we don't want to be included mm. in that list. And it's like, what, oh, we're that's, totally that's... apolitical. We have no, like we have, let's put it this way. There was a question. Should we include somebody from Russia? Okay. That was, there's a, there is a particular operator in Russia who is a, you know, a woman CEO who has not pirated any content and has been trying to keep her her theater chain Legitimate. afloat. Yeah, when they, yeah, and they deserve celebrating, but maybe it wouldn't help them or be safe for them. Right, and and so and we are saying, yeah, you know what? Let's include her because she's really, really struggling and trying to do something. And does she want to be included, or do you find out? Like, do you um, find out if it's safe I, for them, or that's the best thing for them? I don't uh, know. We haven't. We haven't. Uh, that's something to consider. That's something to consider because it's sort of a unique. Normally, of course, you would just do your list, and they would find out when the list came out. But maybe if right. you have a you have a question about whether that would not that would be a disadvantage for them or create issues for them that they might not want. Uh, you know, something to consider because, like, clearly, China, you're not going to put anybody on the list because they don't want to be on the list, and it's not safe for them. Right? If you say, "Oh, they're yeah. great," then the Chinese government says, "Oh, really? The West likes you," and they might get them in trouble. 
That's yeah, which is in- not our intention. Our intention is to say, course. hey, we did some really good stuff over the past year. Of course. Very interesting. Now, the Broadway adaptation of the novel and film Room has suddenly collapsed. A lead producer backed out of the show for personal reasons on March 16th, just about two weeks before the first preview began on April 3rd. They scrambled but failed to make up the shortfall and pulled the plug. The piece has already been performed in London, Ireland, and Canada, though COVID kind of threw a wrench into those productions time and again. Now it's, of course, just money. That's the problem. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop, except for the people involved. But this doesn't happen very often that you're this close to opening and beginning previews and it just suddenly collapses. I mean, this is just shocking. But that's probably a crazy world. How, how they didn't have the money already. You know, it's like, they're a producer. Like, how could they not have their money already in the bank? You know, like, how could it be two weeks before you open? You're like, oh, yeah, we're not doing that. What do you mean? Like, shouldn't they already have the money if they've committed to the show? So I don't know how Broadway works. It's a, it's a crazy, wacky, wild west, but it's very sad for all involved. I was kind of intrigued to see the show. Yeah, well, it, I agree with you in, in thinking, how, how do you not have the money, like, all yeah, tied yeah, up? I mean, it's, it's two weeks. Bond- it's two weeks. Yeah, it should have been six months ago, a year ago. Like, you're putting it. They're all rehearsing. It's about to open. <laughs> like yeah, oh oh did i forget to mail the check <laughs> just really weird yeah uh hey well, if you, if you know how, how broadway works and why they didn't have the money already in the bank tell us yes you can write to us dirt at job is okay yeah we already gave you that information mm. uh and here's the thing somebody somebody is a hot screenwriter Stephen Knight, the creator of Peaky Blinders and screenwriter of Dirty Pretty Things and the Princess Diana biopic Spencer, he's got a lot on his plate. On the same day, okay, he was loudly trumpeted as attached to two new projects. The first, Knight will do an original screenplay for what's expected to be one of the next Star Wars films. They've got a director and in April, Disney will probably announce a release date. That, of course, means all they need now is a script. They don't have a script, but they'll have a release date and a director. That's just great. Uh, and after that, Knight is working on a remake of Hitchcock's Vertigo to star Robert Downey Jr. Uh, I, well, okay, that just boggles my mind. Big deal or big whoop? <laughs> this is everything that's wrong with Hollywood right in one plate. <laughs> it's like, yeah, first, it's just, like oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do Vertigo and I'm going to do a new Star Wars movie. I'm just like, really? Sounds like he's kind of busy. Uh, they, they had some big names involved with like, uh, Damon Lindelof. Uh, how do you say his name? Damon Lindelof. Yeah, yeah thank you. Right. Yeah, he was working on a script and they had it for a year and then they walked away and they're like, yeah, we're not doing that script. And they immediately announced Stephen Knight. He's going to write the script for this project. Not that we know anything about it, but he's going to do It's like, okay. Like, that's cart before the horse. They've got the project. It's ready to go. They want to make it. They've got an idea. They just need a script. It's like, didn't Marvel and Disney just say, hey, we're going to be more cautious. We're going to take our time. We're going to do it right. We're going to not, you know, <laughs> that's not how you do it. And then a remake of Vertigo. There's a horrible idea. There's a horrible idea. And, you know, anything can work. Anything can be redone. I suppose you could remake Citizen Kane if you're insane. But like Vertigo, like that is not a movie ripe for remake. And it's not even my favorite. I, there's about eight Hitchcock movies I like more than Vertigo. There's actually some really st- silly stuff in the movie as far as I'm concerned that could be easily improved, but it's really not a movie you want to remake. It just, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't I, get it. No, it's just a bad idea. It's like, it's, it's almost a no win. They remade Psycho. That didn't work. 
Uh, they've done Rear Window. It's a TV movie. That made sense. Christopher Reeve directing, you know, in a wheelchair already. And you did the TV movie. All right. Nice try. They were going to do that as a stage play. If you reimagine it as a stage play or something else, okay. But just make another movie, Vertigo. When Hitchcock's already done it, probably not a good idea. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I would agree with you. Yeah. Now, this next story could have been uh, in Inside Baseball. It's actually a very important story. Mm. The Internet Archive just lost a major case at the federal level and in a decisive fashion. The Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, for instance, that they're the ones that... Uh, That's the know, same people? Same people, yes. Okay. They, they, they buy print editions of books, just like you can. They then scan them and they make PDF copies of those books and loan them out digitally online. Now, here's the thing. They never loan out more than one copy of each print book at a time, and they never loan out the print book at the same time either. They lock those away. Those, that's their like hard copy. They don't, they don't do anything with those. Uh, they store them. Uh, a judge ruled, nice try, <laughs> but nope, can't do that. Uh, okay, so he used fancy legal terms, but said in a, a clear and decisive ruling, this was bonkers. You can't do it. The Internet Archive has no right to do so, and there's no legal precedent in any way, shape, or form that be, can be construed to allow it. The nonprofit says it plans to appeal. You can get a copy of the 47-page ruling, by the way, but if you email us here at Showbiz Sandbox, but we can only loan out one copy at a time, so you better make your request fast, otherwise you're, you're going to be on a long waiting list. And then, we're, gonna be, and then we're going to be sued. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I was, boy, did I lose this case. Uh, I, I really thought they had a good case. Libraries do this. There are a lot of books that are not available as e-books. They're not, yeah. you know, and, they fall through the cracks. frankly... You know what? A library burns down. Books that are out of print get, get you know, turned into ash. You know what? Now you at least have a digital copy. You don't have the actual physical article, the, the Gutenberg Bible, a physical copy of the Gutenberg, but you have an image of it. I don't, so know, any, actually I don't doing, know any library that has um, made digital copies of their books because they want to have an archive somewhere separate from their site. That's an interesting thought. But libraries are loaning out PDFs of books that are... Uh, too fragile to loan out that aren't available any other way that um, they can't afford the digital copy of. And that's the real issue. The real issue is they're coming up with these onerous, wildly expensive copies of, of you know, the rights to get books on ebook. And they're just hugely expensive. And they say, look, we've got the book. We're loaning it out. We're just happy to loan it out as a PDF rather than a physical book. But the physical book is staying here. We're not loaning it out to anybody else. It's one loan at a time. They could have come and taken the physical book. In this case, they're just taking the PDF, and they're like, nope, nice try, not happening. Uh, he really tore apart the, uh, their case in every possible way. So I'm clearly, uh, at least this judge says I'm very, very wrong on the law. Um, but um, the, um, it says... Their, their, their case, I think, is their, their quote, I think, is important. They say, libraries are more than the customer service departments for corporate database products. For democracy to thrive at global scale, libraries must be able to sustain their historic role in society, owning, preserving, and lending books. That's all they were trying to do. Um, but the judge says, not that way. And uh, by the way, the Wayback Machine, I thought that was Sherman and Mr. Peabody. I had no idea it was the Internet Archive. Yes. Yeah. Well, now, okay, so let, let's move on to Bloomberg, because Bloomberg is reporting something that, uh, well, movie theaters will find interesting. Another day, another report that Apple is going to 
you know, they're going to go big on theatrical movies. Bloomberg reports that Apple is ramping up to spend $1 billion a year on theatrical Woo! releases. Yeah, we're talking at least three movies. Uh, believe, <laughs> now, they believe that high profile content will lure people to their streaming service. Also, you know, movie stars to their productions. This follows in the wake of Amazon acquiring MGM for eight. $8.45 billion with plans to release 10 to 12 movies a year as well. If this comes to pass, and that's a big if, it would be like getting two new major studios. And that's kind of what, what we're talking about here. Now, which one of them wants to make Nancy Meyers' rom-com for $150 million? And by the way, can I stop you right there and say, please don't do that. A $60 million, sure, but $150 million on a rom-com, of course you're gonna lose money. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop until it becomes official. And we know that uh, Apple is going to make 10 to 12 movies a year long term and give them full theatrical releases with a full marketing push. Netflix releasing a movie for a week isn't going to make a difference to the box office. It's not going to help exhibitors. If, in fact, Apple and Amazon step up and do it right and invest in the structure so they can release movies either through a third party like uh, the MGM Shingle or do it by themselves and have a full release with proper marketing. I think that's better for their library. I think it's better for their streaming service long-term. I don't see the point in spending $200 million on a Martin Scorsese movie and just putting it on your service. I might do that for a 10-hour miniseries, like Brand of oh, Brothers yeah. or The Pacific, like they did for Tom Hanks and his projects, but I would not do that for a single movie. I would want to make money theatrically if I could, increase the profile of the movie, maybe make back the money I spent, and then put it exclusively on my streaming service. So if they actually announce this and if they actually do it in that way, then yes, it's a big deal. Until then, it's definitely a big whoop. Yeah, I think uh, this is why, by the way, everybody said, I can't believe, uh, you know, Warner Brothers just a day and dated all those 2021 movies, you know, without first going and talking to people. This is why you don't go and talk to people, because obviously Apple is going out and they're talking to different uh, studios saying, look, we don't have the capability of releasing these movies. So can we work with you as a third party and we'll give you a distribution fee? This is very standard stuff, by the way. That's all yeah. very standard stuff. Yeah. And obviously this stuff gets leaked to places like... Yeah, well, there's no reason why they should be secretive anyway about wanting to make a lot of movies and spend a lot of money. Everybody would love to hear it. Yeah, that's true. But that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. And uh, here's, here's a look at the latest news in the music industry. That's what we're talking about this week. Albums are getting longer and longer. Because, and longer. Uh, that, uh, yeah, and that helps you make a big debut. You know, you got 50 songs and you listen to the whole album. That's like a lot of listening of one particular artist. Worldwide recorded revenue hit a new all-time high, which we kind of talked about for the U.S. a couple weeks ago. But I'll spoil the party over the news with my old catchphrase, adjusted for inflation, question oh. mark? Uh, and, and Michael will find some bad news among the facts and figures as well. Wow, we really know how to like kill a buzz, don't we? You know, yeah. we just for inflation. Yeah. Vinyl continues to grow. TikTok has more to worry about than just Congress. And buying tickets online is still a hassle. So let's get going. <laughs> I guess the, the, the first one is Morgan Wallen and his darn album, which has 928 songs on it. Yeah, what's happening? Well, his latest album is sitting at number one for the third week in a row. And now, is he ga gaining a sneaky advantage, though, by making his album super long? 
I, you know, I wondered, it's, it's not just because the Monster Double album is, has 36 tracks. Billboard breaks down the numbers and says, if you just took the 10 most popular tracks, it would still be the number one album in the country. And if you split it in two, Wallen would have the number one album and the number two album. And to be fair, if Michael and I released our album of Hall & Oates covers, it was like at least 36 tracks long, right? So it probably wouldn't chart at all. So that's right. So people have that. to actually want to hear your music. So that's number one. He's a big star despite his personal travails, which he apparently has put behind him. But the bloat in album length is undeniable. Billboard notes that in the 70s and early 80s, the average length of a hit album was about 40 minutes. Then CDs came out, and I remember this vividly. People suddenly said, oh, we've got an hour. We can fill it up. And you're like, no, that's not really the best way to make an album. And they would fill up the CD with like bonus tracks and extended remixes or extra songs that wouldn't have made the cut in the old days. Uh, and now the era of streaming means even longer albums are more appealing for all sorts of royalty and bragging rights reasons. So that's, that's not great. And this Morgan Whalen album is another example. Uh, Drake does it all the time. Uh, a lot of people do. It's really not good for the artistry. Long term, you don't want to create albums that people have to wade through. If you're going to do a double album, there'll be a darn good reason for it. And a nice, tight 35, 40 minute album that looks better and better all the time. So it's bad. Don't let the format trick you into thinking you have to fill it up. Or don't let some short-term advantage about an opening week debut keep you from creating the best possible album you could. Believe me, Morgan Whalen's new album would be better if it wasn't 36 tracks long. But then we get to recorded music. So people are listening to Morgan Whalen and they are listening to music. Worldwide, recorded music grossed $26.2 billion. That's a 9% growth over 2021. That's the eighth year in a row where revenue has grown. In pure dollar terms, it's the most ever. Sperling, say it. Though, <laughs> though, when you adjust for inflation, the glory days of compact discs were hitting nearly $40 billion worldwide. Right. Oh, so. Not double, but like 70% more. So we got a lot of room to grow, but still growth is growth. And streaming is the number one reason. Streaming is where most of the money is coming from. Worldwide, some 589 million people, including Sperling and me, pay for a music subscription service. Correct. So that leaves about 7.5 billion people who don't. And of course, physical music still contributes with vinyl big in the US and CDs, God bless them, still big in Japan and North Korea. So that's interesting. So it's, you know, vinyl, I have to admit, has been a much bigger factor than I thought. It's never, of course, going to be the dominant factor that's going to be streaming from now on until something new replaces that. But it's bigger than I expected, that's for sure. It's so big that, you know, there's still a big shortage of vinyl itself. And that's why Metallica, who keeps putting out their albums in fancy new box sets, they have bought their own record factory. They put out so much vinyl, they truly, it's not just to help, you know, have a business and help out. They need it for themselves. They have their own record factory because they put out so much vinyl. Now, wow. there is some bad news in the numbers. And the bad news is that, uh, there has been the good news is there is growth in every single category. And let's remember 2021 was a bizarro year. So growing beyond 2021, when the world shut down and people were desperate for music streaming and everyone decided they needed vinyl again, that's good news, but it is slowing down in every single category, including streaming subscriptions. So every possible area, 
the growth has slowed pretty significantly. So that's a trend you got to keep an eye on. Um, you know, you, that music still is popular. And unfortunately, it's more popular than TikTok thought. TikTok, of course, is facing a lot of blowback in Congress here in the U.S. My God, you're taking over the world, TikTok. But uh, they've been in a showdown, not just with Congress, but with the major labels. They don't want to pay more money for the music that gets featured on their service. Music is huge on TikTok. And the labels are like, we want a bigger cut. TikTok says, why? Leave us alone. And they thought, do we really need that latest song by Drake and Morgan? Do we really need all that new music? That's what they do. I can answer that question for you if you'd like. Yes. Sure. Yeah. How do you know your daughters? Uh, yeah, because they like that's where they. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, I'm not saying that that TikTok will fall off a cliff. It won't, but it helps. Well, in Australia, they did an experiment. They removed all major label music from their service. Maybe they don't need the music. Now, some third party reports say the results are in and that the number of users dropped dramatically week by week as they did it, and the amount of time the people who were on the service that they spent on the service also dropped off week after week after week. It was about a month experiment or maybe two months, and it was just like, whoops. It was significant, it was major, and it was not good. So that argument failed, at least in Australia, at least in this one experiment. But, you know, the, the TikTok is overwhelmed with all the short videos that people post on it. And music streaming services are deluged with uploads. A report made at South by Southwest from a third party estimates that as of December 2022, Spotify features 158 million audio tracks. And we get That's reports, a lot. That's we get a reports lot all the time that like, oh, there's 30,000 or 60,000 or 100,000 new tracks being added every day. And now we have reports that AI, they, they're creating like 30-second little drone stuff. So like if you want to play relaxation music, they've got crappy, you know, AI-generated music tracks lasting 30 or 40 seconds that go... Yeah. And they're short because the more tracks they have, the more money they make. So uh, it's getting worse and worse all the time. But guess what? 160 million audio tracks, almost 70 million of them, not half, but more than 40%, were played 10 times or less in the entire calendar year. So, so an album... 40% of the music on Spotify... Is virtually not highest. listened to at all. 40 million yeah. tracks, or about 25%, were played zero times. Zero. Even your mother didn't play that track. I mean, nobody played 40, 24% of the tracks that Spotify is hosting. Now, that's, music business worldwide. Remarkable to me. That's unbelievable. Like, that's a lot of shit you don't need to have on your service. I mean, I would say, guess what? After a year of not getting to play, we're taking you off our service, right? Well, they're paying a lot of money. Music Business Worldwide, a site that we really like, they estimate Spotify pays at least. $150 million a year to host all that music. That is an extremely conservative estimate, they say. It's probably multiples of that. And their suggestion is, why don't you charge for hosting the music? People want to have their music on your site? Make them pay. Good idea, except there's a problem, that it's not the major labels and the individual artists interacting with Spotify. It is third-party companies. When Spotify tried to set up a, a company to handle people posting their own music on Spotify, they got huge blowback from the record labels who said, what are you trying to do? Get out of our business. You know, you're not supposed to be a vertically aligned company. You know, 
go away. But so they right. and they were saying, look, we're so not vertically aligned. We're totally not eating into. These are people that you don't want to sign. Like right. it, sign them and then you submit their stuff. Mm-hmm. So apparently it's more complicated than just saying, hey, you want to host music on here? You got, and if you don't get any hit plays after six months, you would think it would automatically remove it. You know, why not? If, if, if a track literally doesn't get played, after, you have no legal obligation to host anything. And if something doesn't get a single play after three months, take it off. They can submit it again, go through the hassle, or maybe they have to wait six months before they post it again or something. But, you know, if you get no plays, you get less than 10 plays, you know, maybe you say, all right, you know, no. (laughs) Like, at least you should sit down and play your own album 10 times in a year, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Just to check whether it's there. Exactly. Now tell me what's happening with The Cure. Well, the cure is going on tour, so there you go. That's that's what's happening. It's it's a good cure. Oh wait, no. Normally, that's good news. Okay, it is. but putting tickets on sale and trying not to gouge your fans is proving an all caps nightmare for lead singer Robert <laughs> Smith. I loved what he was doing here, but I don't know if it's going to work. He's been talking publicly about the outrageous fees tacked on to the ticket prices with Smith's uh, saying, look, the cure has zero control over this. Okay, he said the band opted out of dynamic ticket pricing, so they said no. All tickets, same price. Things are really popular, doesn't matter, same price. Platinum tickets and the like, which Smith basically calls out as ripoffs and which would end tomorrow if artists would just refuse to do them. He said the band did choose to do verified fan tickets because they believe this would deter scalpers and he urged fans not to buy from scalpers. Meanwhile, he's very loudly calling out Ticketmaster and calling for more info on what they're doing. And it worked, it worked. The Cure was charging $20 for tickets. $20. Now scalpers have snagged some of them and posted them online and demanded like $1,000. And he's like, don't buy them. For God's sakes, just don't buy them. If people don't buy from scalpers, they won't, they won't go out of business. And again, I don't know why they couldn't do a, you know, show your ID or credit card at the door. But anyway, but they're clearly trying to do the best. But the fees and facility charges were more than the face value of the tickets. People bought four tickets for $80 and had to pay $170 to ticket. So they had to pay more than the ticket just to get the ticket. And Ticketmaster actually agreed to refund $10 if you're a verified fan and $5 to others to give back some of the costs of that ticket fee. So instead of like $20, you're paying $10. But, you know, it's still insane. My God. And I had trouble. I was in New York. Uh, after New York, I had such a great time. I was determined to see this fall show called Merrily We Roll Along, a revival of the Sondheim musical starring Daniel Radcliffe and Jonathan Groff. I have to see it. I have to see it. My life will be empty if I don't see it even though it's going to be crazy money, the most money I've ever paid for a Broadway ticket, because normally I get them for free, (laughs) but now I'm not reviewing anymore, so I'm going to do it. I got online, I spoke to a friend, I get the tickets, I choose them, they're more than I want to pay, they're like $300, I go along, and my card's rejected. Oh, oh, it 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 auto-filled the wrong way. Okay, I fix it. Oh, it got rejected again. What's going on? Oh, it got rejected again. Every time I have to go out and come back in and snag, but I'm getting the same tickets every time. And I finally do it again. I realized I had a new address for the billing address. I got it right. And while I was doing that, they increased the tickets 20%. Seriously? Yes. I paid an extra $60 for my tickets for each ticket. I was so furious. I'm like, oh. Like dynamic pricing, oh great. A lot of people wanted to buy tickets, so you're already charging me three hundred and twenty dollars. So now I get to pay no three hundred and ten. Now I get to pay three hundred and seventy. That's ridiculous. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, it makes you not want to ever buy a ticket to any show. And here I am, an early fan. I signed up for an early ticket. I signed up for early access. I signed up, you know, did everything I could to show as a sincere fan, ready to commit uh, seven months in advance to being at Broadway on a Tuesday night in October, and I'm paying through the roof. I thought, well, I'll get here lies love. My friend bought tickets early, early tickets on sale. They had more tickets going on sale. The standing, it's a standing room ticket because the show's done immersive. Standing room ticket, he paid eighty dollars. I'm like, that's great, that's great. I'll do that. I'll be happy to stand. Up, oh, no, it was two hundred dollars by the time I got to them. Yeah, it's it's getting to the point where, you know, people like me and like others, there were people at the UKCA conference that were saying, yeah, I was going to come to CinemaCon early and go see Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. But then I, I went on Ticketmaster to buy the tickets. They were $1,200 for like oh, seats in the third tier. You just I was like, don't uh, no. let that happen. That, ha- that is so easy to stop. I don't understand. You make the person bring their ID or their credit card that they used to buy them, and then you can't have a scalped ticket. And they, but they're selling the tickets on Ticketmaster. You know, they're selling them. For scalpers. Yeah. That's what I find absurd and outrageous. Well, scalping's never going to die, but some people unfortunately did. Like uh, Blazing Saddles screenwriter Norman Steinberg. He died at the age of 83. I love this story. He was working as a lawyer in New York City, and he hated it. It's like the 60s, and, and, and Get Smart is on television. And he kept bumping into Mel Brooks when they were getting their morning coffee at a chock full of nuts, which used to be a, a, you know, a coffee store chain. And after endless badgering, he kept saying, I'm funny, I'm funny, let me write something for you. Brooks said, fine, write something. Write a script for Get Smart, even if the show is basically about to be canceled. So Steinberg wrote a script. He's a lawyer. Went home, wrote a script, handed it to Brooks. Brooks read it and said, you know what? This is funny. <laughs> and he quit, he quit his job as a lawyer that same day. Soon he was in L.A. winning an Emmy alongside George Carlin and others when writing for the Flip Wilson show, which was the number one show in the country, a massive success when it opened up. He had a peak in the 70s. He helped work on the Emmy-winning TV special Free to Be You and Me, headed by Marlo Thomas. And yeah. in a head-spinning thing, that same year, he was one of the writers on Blazing Saddles. <laughs> Talk about two polar opposite projects. He did a lot of stuff. He created a sitcom. Some of it was pretty good. But 1982 captures life in Hollywood pretty well. On September 24th, 1982, the film Yes, Giorgio debuted. It starred Luciano Pavarotti. Do you know this movie? I still no. remember the Siskel and Ebert review. Oh, it's one of the worst movies of all time. He wrote the script. Steinberg wrote the script, and it was immediately hailed as, yes, one of the worst films of all time. He had the flop of flops. Luciano Pavarotti. Let's put him in a movie. Great idea. It worked for Mario Lanza. Well, don't worry. Two weeks later, exactly two weeks later, on October 8th, 1982, Steinberg co-wrote another script. And that movie opened up. It was My Favorite Year, starring Peter O'Toole, immediately hailed as a gem, a throwback to the Hollywood of old, and live TV. It's a classic. Uh, you got to laugh, right? When something like that, do it. Yes, well, that's Giorgio. classic Hollywood. That's classic Hollywood. Um, and speaking of classic Hollywood, actor Lance Reddick. Great actor. He's in the John Wick movies. Really well known, of course, for The Wire. He worked on a ton of stuff. He had a 12-episode arc on the prison drama Oz. Uh, he was just just a terrific actor. Made every show he was in better. He was filming the John Wick spinoff, The Ballerina. He was also in the White Man Oof. Can't Jump reboot, doing the Kate Mutiny Court Martial. He's got a Regina King project. Tons of credits. He even did voice work for Rick and Morty and DuckTales and video games. But uh, just an excellent actor. And Peter Werner. Uh, you know, I didn't really 
I didn't really know that much about Peter Werner until uh, I read the, the obituary that you posted here. Yeah, he won the Oscar for a student film he created when studying at the AFI. It was based on a Joyce Carol Oates short story and the 1976 live-action short won an Academy Award. His kid brother is Tom Warner of, of The Cosby Show and Roseanne fame and that 70s show and that 90s show. And Peter Werner went right from winning the Oscar to directing an episode of the solemn acclaimed TV drama Family, and he was off. He was nominated for four Emmys over the years, three DGAs, not to mention winning a Peabody Award for his work on the TV movie LBJ, The Early Years, and did yeoman's work on shows like Justify, Blue Bloods, Elementary, The Cosby Spinoff, A Different World. Um, 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 I think he did. A, I think he did The Blacklist too, The Wonder Years. But best of all, Moonlighting. He did nine episodes of Moonlighting, one of the best shows of all time, including the black and white episode, The Dream Sequence Always Rings Twice. And if you've seen that show, you will remember that. But you can't see it right now because it's not available to stream. And that brings me again to John Jakes, the author of the North and South trilogy of books. He died at 90. North and South was one of the biggest miniseries of all time. And you can buy it digitally, but you cannot stream it anywhere. Now, if the South rises again, John Jakes won't be around to write about it because he died at the age of 90. And he is most famous for those books, North and South. They became a trilogy of TV movies on ABC starring Kirstie Alley, Patrick Swayze, and many others. He made... $25 when he was a kid when he sold a short story to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. He was just 18 years old. And then he went on to work in advertising. He wrote on the side until conceiving of a series of books retelling American history through the lives of one multi-generational family. It was meant to capitalize on the upcoming bicentennial celebration in 1976. And boy, did it work. The first book in the Kent Family Chronicles came out in 1974, and the eight books went on to sell 55 million copies. Wow. In 1975, he became the first author to have three books on the New York Times bestseller list in one year. His Civil War epic, North and South, came out in the 80s, and the first miniseries in particular was one of the 10 highest-rated miniseries in history. Hal Holbrook played Lincoln, Robert Guillaume was Frederick Douglass, and Johnny Cash was John Brown. And if you want to remember his work, you can make donations in his name to the library of your choice. But you cannot stream North and South. So much stuff falls through the cracks. It's unbelievable. Don't let our show be the same. Yes. In fact, the way for, you know, what, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> the I, way I to not, not let the you... show fall through the cracks is to subscribe. Yes. Yes, in, in wherever you get podcasts, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or Microsoft Marketplace, Google Podcasts, uh, that's where you can find our show. And please do subscribe to the show or rate and review the, the show in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do. That information can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com, along with those ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at Showbiz Sandbox, or on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. And Michael Giltz has a new website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's thewarbetweenthestates.com. 
Which might actually be a website. Might, might actually be a website, but I haven't found it yet. Yeah. Well, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com, where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Uh-huh.